Welcome to First Christian Church today. I'm really glad you're with us. It's really good to see you. And I, before we go any further, can I just say I hope the coming week, family gatherings or however you're going to make it work for Thanksgiving, um, have a great time with people gathering around and saying, hey, we made it this far through this mess called a pandemic and we're going we're to get the rest of the way. So um, it's good to see you here today. Particularly if you're joining us online, I'm really glad you're with us as well. Welcome to First Christian Church today. To everybody in the East Auditorium. Thanks for being here. I was just over there a few minutes ago, and uh, it's good to have the church together proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ and uh, learning together. My name is Wayne. I'm part of this pastoral team, and I'd invite you to take your Bible, please, and turn to the book of Matthew. Maybe you can find it on your smartphone today. You probably can. And um, Matthew is uh, the first in what we call the New Testament, the first series of books in the New Testament. Uh, the Old Testament being the stories that focused on the ancient people of Israel. The New Testament focusing on Jesus Christ and the church. And uh, Matthew is the first of that. It's a biography of Jesus written by one of his disciples. We're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 5 in just a minute. But before we get to that, uh, since this sermon series is a, um, a series based on the stories of our lives then I'd like to start with a story, and some of you have lived this story with me because it's sort of infamous around here a little bit. And uh, some of you may recall this confession that I had to make about 20 years ago. And if you weren't around back then, I'm making the same confession again of something that, not a stellar moment in my life. 20 years or so ago, um, back then there was a group that was well known around the nation called Promise Keepers. It was a Christian men's movement that was very popular around the nation at the time, and big stadiums were filled with, you know, men striving to learn of Christian masculinity. Sometimes 30, 40, 50, even 60,000 people were in attendance. In fact, it was my privilege to play keyboards in the Promise Keepers Band for a number of years, and I would fly out on Thursday from Decatur, believe it or not. I'd fly out on Thursday. We'd go to a place. We'd rehearse Friday morning. There would be, you know, the event Friday night into Saturday at 2 o'clock, and then I'd fly home to preach here back in those days. We had just Sunday morning services, and I'd fly home to preach back here. And that was great, but that's a different story, all right? But, uh, so there was an event in Indianapolis at the Indiana Colts Stadium over there that I was not playing at, but actually we were going as a group of men from the church. I suppose we had 50 or 60 guys going over there. And uh, the idea was that we'd meet in the parking lot, sort of divvy up in cars, travel over there. We had hotels lined up, and we said, we'll, we'll start together. We'll arrive. We won't, we'll just see you in the stadium. Here's your ticket, and we'll figure it out from there. So that was all, all good, and I was not scheduled to drive. Uh, I had just purchased a brand-new little Nissan Altima sports model. It was a five-on-the-floor, you know, manual transmission, a sunroof, a spoiler on the back, sporty wheels. It wasn't typically what you would expect preachers to drive. And I'd had it about a week 
when this PK event, was, this Promise Givers event was coming up, and I, uh, I wasn't scheduled to drive, but in the hours before we were going over there, we learned that uh, one of the men in our church had developed serious back trouble and pain and was in quite a s- serious matter. And he lived in Bement. If you're watching us online today, uh, Bement is a small village about 12, 15 miles east of our city. And it was decided that, Wayne, you should go visit him on the way to Indianapolis. It's on the way, and why don't you go pray with him and you catch up with us later. So a fellow who shall remain unnamed, except some of you may know him. His initials are DJ. He's married to a woman whose initials are PJ, and I'll just leave it there. You've got to figure it out. Because I want to blame the story on him. So there you go. Um, he said, Wayne, I'll go along with you to keep you company. And off we went. We stopped in Bement. We had prayer with the guy. And uh, we're making our way through the country roads to get back towards the freeway. And uh, he asked me a question that he should not have asked. My brand new car, a little sports model car. And he goes, have you given it a wind-up yet? How fast can it go? Well, it was not a wise question because we learned very quickly it could easily go past 95 miles an hour on a country road. And we were cruising along at that, and children never do that. <laughs> Teenagers never do that. I'm telling you why you should never do that, okay? Because we're, we're going along for maybe three or four minutes, and there was a rise in the road in front of me. And I thought, you know what could be on the other side of that road rise might not be a good thing. So as we're coming to the bottom of that rise, I thought I should back off. And sure enough, we came up over the rise, and there was a state trooper, deputy, <laughs> deputy sheriff, whatever. I don't, he was literally standing in the road doing this. You know, he had, he had his radar gun out. And um, I, didn't even, I didn't even wait for him to get in his car. He just motioned me over, and I knew I was in trouble. I mean, it was... Okay, pull over. There's no use doing a car chase or anything like that. That's not a good thing. So I wind the window down. I didn't do this. It was a push button. And he goes, see, I'm really old when you think about winding the window. You do this. Some of you don't even know what that is. Okay, but nonetheless, the window goes down. He comes over, and he's got his arms like this. And he goes, "Uh, uh, sir, is there any reasonable reason why I just clocked you doing 73 miles an hour? in a 55-mile-an-hour zone. Now, I had all these thoughts go through my head immediately. Well, I'm a preacher, and surely there's a pass for that. Uh, (laughs) I've been doing the Lord's work. I've been out praying for a guy. I'm on my way where we're going to really deal with people, and we're going to help men get their right with God and all that sort of stuff. And I'm thinking, no, I don't want to use the Lord's name like this. That's almost like using it. I mean, no, that's not a reasonable answer. So so when he says, is there any reasonable reason why I just clocked you doing 73 miles an hour in a 55-mile-an-hour zone, I said, "Uh, no, sir. At this moment, there's no reasonable reason why I was going that 73 miles per hour. Now, I didn't point out that if he'd caught me 300 yards beforehand, (laughs) he didn't ask and I didn't tell. So he takes my papers and he leaves and goes and sits in his car for a while. And then he comes back about 10 minutes later. And this is his statement. Since you've not had any tickets in the past, teenagers make note of that. I was in my 40s at this point, since you've not, or 30s at least. Since you've not had any tickets in the past, I'm not going to give you a ticket 
I'm going to give you a warning. Whoa. I remember my mind going, what? How did this happen? Because if he'd really known how fast I was going, it wouldn't be a ticket. It wouldn't be a warning. It'd be, do not, I mean, go to jail. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Give us your license, that sort of thing. Because here's what happened. I deserved justice. But somehow or other, in that moment, I got mercy. I deserved a large fine and probably a court appearance, but I got a slip of paper called a warning. And so I have a lesson out of that. If you're going to speed, make sure you're praying for somebody right beforehand. <laughs> no, that's not, the les- that's not the lesson. The lesson is that the reality is all of us, from time to time, we do dumb things, we do wrong things, we do downright evil things. And sometimes the deserved punishment is expressed in mercy and forgiveness. When I think about the story that my life is and the story in which God worked in me and through me and and continues to write that story, there's a chapter in my book that's called Mercy Extended. Do you have any stories like that? Where you deserve judgment but got forgiveness and mercy? We are concluding this sermon series today on the stories of our lives, about who's writing our story. And when we as a church ask that question, who is writing your story, it's obviously based on a rhetorical bias. That if you're a follower of Jesus Christ today here, and maybe not everybody is, but if you are a follower of Jesus Christ today, we'd say that for Christians, Jesus should be the author of your story. And if that's the case... If Jesus is the author of your story, let's see what he has to say about the basic framework of our life's narrative. Because we're going to look at what Jesus said at the very beginning of his ministry. Uh, As Pastor Brian and I have stated in previous weeks, we're using these opening words of Jesus' public ministry as the basis for our answer to the question at hand. Who's writing our story? It should be Jesus. And the Beatitudes that we're going to read right now form the basis of Jesus' understanding of how Christians, his followers, are to do life in a way that's upside down, in a way that's different than the world around us. So will you read with me, please, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Jesus saw the crowds. And when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And this is what Jesus says. So this is uh, on the northern end of uh, the Sea of Galilee, northern Israel, up up, up towards the Golan Heights. So Lebanon is not too far away. And uh, he's right there. You can go there today and you can sit on that hill and you can literally hear the water lapping at the sea, at the edge of the water, at the Sea of Galilee. And we read this, that blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're going to focus particularly today on verse 7 that says, Blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. What does that mean? I mean, how come I got mercy on that back road in the country out by Bement that day? Do you have to show mercy 
in order for God to give you mercy? Well, I have to start off by saying no, because mercy is not merit-based. Mercy comes from someone who chooses to gift you with mercy, despite your guilt or your circumstances otherwise. And mercy is not only just about forgiveness, but it's about, we'll come to that in a minute, how it comes to you freely, that it's our circumstances, just God says, or somebody says, I'm going to give you something. Mercy comes to you in a move of compassion, despite your ability to earn it. For example, there's a story out of Ann Arbor, Michigan that has... I've, always, I've wondered about this since it took place a lot of years ago now, back in 1996. Some of you might remember this. And I don't know all the ins and outs of the details, and there's bound to be side stories about rights and responsibilities and free speech and hatred and racism and so forth and so on. But here's the basic nutshell of the story. In June of 1996, the Ku Klux Klan announced plans to hold a rally in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where the University of Michigan is, is located. Now, they're going to have a protest. In my opinion, kind of a dumb idea. Can't say that I'm in agreement in any way with the Ku Klux Klan. Counter-protesters were also planning to show up, and so the police got in the middle. Police in riot gear managed to keep the two sides apart. But one guy with SS, like Nazi tattoos, on his arm and wearing, bedecked in some sort of Confederate flag, Somehow or other, he strolled through the wrong side of the crowd. And it's unclear whether or not he tried to do this on purpose, where he tried to join the counter-protesters, or if he was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. But nonetheless, he ended up on the wrong side of the police line. And pretty soon, he was in trouble and running for his life. Pretty soon, the anti-KK crowd caught him. And the next thing you knew, he was on the ground. And his life, you could imagine, was in imminent danger. The SS tattoo on his arm certainly didn't help. And there were shouts from the anti-KK crowd now that they had one in their midst and he's on the ground. Can you imagine what they were saying? Kill the Nazi, kill the Nazi, kill the Nazi. And you would think that under regular circumstances, his life might be over. But the next thing you know, a young 18-year-old African-American teenage girl threw herself on top of the Klan guy. Her name is Keshia Thomas. Thomas. Keshia Thomas. She realized that a mob mentality had taken over. And as the group is surrounding him and kicking him and hitting him, and they're taking their wooden sticks from the placards and they're hitting him and they're little. I mean, this guy, she says this. It became barbaric. When people are in a crowd, they're more likely to, to do things they would never do as an individual. Someone had to step out of the pack and say, this isn't right. And so this teenager, still in high school, threw herself on top of a man that she did not know and shielded him from the blows. And when the crowd saw her do that, they backed off. She said, when they, dro when they dropped him to the ground, it felt like two angels lifted my body up and laid me down. Now, the photos that you've just seen our photo is from a student photographer by the name of Mark Bruner. And he said this, that young lady, Kashea Thomas, she saved the man. This is language. She put herself at risk to protect someone who, in my opinion, would not have done the same for her. And then he asked this really powerful question. Who in the world does that? The tattoo guy, the SS guy, the KKK guy, received mercy. 
See, I think we could all agree at that moment, we can see that's mercy. We know what it looks like when we see it, but to actually display, but, but we would go, how, how, what is it really? How do you know if you can, working in mercy, you can see mercy in other, when other people demonstrate it, but how do you do it yourself? Well, particularly if you look at Matthew chapter 5 here, where Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they'll receive mercy. He has this expectation that his followers are going to live with a posture and an attitude of mercy. That word right there, merciful, eleemon, it speaks of this. It speaks of an act of kindness and goodwill towards someone who is either miserable or afflicted or both. And that affliction, whether it be sin, whether it be their life circumstances, causes that person to live below you in some fashion of life. And so mercy starts out top-down from the view, if you will. When you act in mercy, you're acting towards someone who is below you in life. Maybe they're below you in grief, below you in income, below you in life struggles. Maybe they're below you and they're simply having a bad day. Maybe they're below you in intellect. And you can see it, and as you step into their life, it's a step into mercy, but it's not from above. Then you come below a top-down person choosing to come from the bottom to give something that you have to someone who is needy. It might be grace. It might be forgiveness. It might be resources. It, it might be a ride to the hospital. It might be a meal delivered. It might be a quiet, just holding a hand. I'll tell you something that did, guys, this is not in my notes, so hang on, okay? Last summer, I was driving north on Oakland Avenue, and uh, there was an, an elderly woman uh, who was pulling two suitcases, and it was, you know, 85, 9 degrees, and she had the sweat pouring down. And uh, I, I did something I've never, I don't do. I just stopped and said, ma'am, do you need a ride somewhere? She said, oh, please, please, please. So I get her suitcases, and I put them in the car, and I put her, and she had not had a shower in a long time. And, but I'm going, okay, I can help this. I can do this. I mean, and so I, I, I put her, in, and I'm getting everything in, in the car. I said, now, where do you need to go? Oh, right there. It was three houses away. <laughs> Why didn't you say that? Oh, the house is right there. I would have carried your luggage for you, if, but nonetheless. It's coming and saying, I can see a need, and I'm going to help, help that. One of my favorite stories in Scripture details Jesus' ability to act in mercy. In Matthew chapter 9, we read that Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Think about what's going on here. The Son of God, the creator of the cosmos, the King of heaven, leaves heaven in order to extend mercy to people who are harassed and helpless. This God sees you, sees people who are harassed and helpless. This Jesus acts in mercy. He could have stayed in heaven. He could have watched and acknowledged that humans are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And that was certainly his prerogative, to stand off, if you will, from a distance. He could have simply witnessed the plight of humanity's chaos. But instead, he says, I'm going to come looking from here. I'm going to come from bottom up 
and bring grace and mercy, forgiveness, life healing. His mission involved a mission to change humanity, to bring order out of that humanity's chaos, forgiveness out of sin's guilt, our globe's culture, and our life approach. Who are we kidding? We are all traveling at 95 mile an hour plus, not a 55 mile an hour zone, but we're all traveling in a, in a danger zone where it says, slow down, there are kids here, and we should be doing 20 miles an hour, and we're racing on. We are worthy of judgment, but Scripture says, despite the fact that everyone has sinned, and that all of us are traveling with our foot to the metal far too often. But yet we could say because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ even though we were dead in transgressions. If you could say even though we were dead in our life speed violations, it's by grace you've been saved. This God who is rich in mercy, rich in grace, sees you and responds. Jesus died for us. And I want you to notice the trajectory, the direction of this move from heaven. Watching from heaven, coming to earth, to come and see and experience humanity's needs, and then acting in forgiveness. Here's what happened. God, God chose forgiveness, pardon me, God chose for compassion, leading to empathy, leading to action, and then electing forgiveness. And we have some in our church today who are experiencing that and are saying, man, I, this is, I've accepted God's forgiveness in a new way. They are getting baptized. They are declaring that God's mercy has reached them. And I want you to hear some of their stories right now. Chris and Leslie. Good morning. This is Fiona, and this is her story. Today, I'm continuing my journey with Christ by declaring him as my Lord and Savior. I didn't know if I was ready for this step. And then I realized that I've been ready since I joined First Christian Church family. I didn't believe that I needed church in my life, that I was fine with my faith or lack thereof. But I was wrong. Tasha Layton's song, Look What You've Done, describes the process that my heart and soul have been going through these past few months. I let so many lies take root in my life, but now standing in His presence, I can feel the truth removing those deep-rooted lies. It's hard to put into words how that makes me feel. The best I can do is I feel brighter, my heart, my soul, my eyes. It's like I've been in a slumber and now I'm wide awake and ready to take on anything that comes my way with my protector by my side. I'm thankful to my husband and daughter for being by my side and helping guide me through this journey. So let's continue on this glorious adventure. Awesome, awesome. Well, I'm here with Fiona and her husband, Scott, uh, to celebrate uh, the joy of her commitment to the Lord and we, as we prayed together, even more so his commitment to her. And so Fiona, I'm gonna ask you a couple of questions here that I think I know the answer to. And that is, have you accepted Jesus as the forgiver and the savior of your life? Yes. And do you commit to follow him as the Lord and the leader all the days of your life? Yes. Her son just before this dared her uh, with an option for Texas Roadhouse if she said no to one of the questions. So <laughs> Texas Roadhouse is good, I think this is better. I think this is better. So Fiona, because of your profession of faith in Jesus Christ, your husband Scott now baptizes you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
This is Maddox, and this is his story. My name is Maddox James Park, and I want to be baptized because my parents have always taken me to church and taught me about God. I saw people baptized when I was younger and thought someday when I'm older, I want to be baptized too. I'm getting baptized today to show others that I'm following Jesus. Love it. I love it. All right, Maddox, have you accepted Jesus as the forgiver and the savior of your life? And you commit to follow him all the days of your life as leader and Lord. Awesome. All right, buddy, because of your profession and faith, Maddox Park, your dad, Jeff, baptizes you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is Carson, and this is his story. My name is Carson Dominic Park, and I'm nine years old. I want to be baptized today because I want to show everybody that I gave my heart to Jesus, and I want to go to heaven. I asked Jesus into my heart a long time ago, six years ago to be exact, when I was old enough to talk. Jesus forgave my sins, and he can do the same for you. Love it. Love it. Love it. All right, Carson, have you accepted Jesus as the forgiver and the savior of your life? And you commit to follow him as the Lord and the leader all the days of your life. Awesome. All right, buddy. Your dad now gets to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Carson Park. Awesome. It doesn't get it doesn't get any better than that. We had baptisms last night. We got baptisms in the next service as well. And I want to say, can we congratulate all those people? Because, because you know what? There, those baptisms are an indication that the story of God's mercy has reached them. And God's story is now part of their story. And in light of that, may I remind you what I just said a few minutes ago before we witnessed those baptisms, that God chose compassion, leading to empathy, turning to election, pardon me, turning to action, then electing forgiveness. And if we're to emulate Jesus' approach to mercy... If that's sort of a step-by-step process for him, uh, shouldn't we be doing the same thing? Because after all, Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they will experience mercy. And I am quite aware of this. I need God's mercy far beyond just speeding. Far beyond speeding. And I'm striving then to demonstrate it in daily living. I'm striving to, to write Not only a chapter that says, mercy I received, but a chapter that I'm saying, mercy I extended. See, Jesus expects his followers to not only receive mercy, to extend it, to extend it to those in need, regardless of that person's personal merit to receive any grace of any sort. And it's not blind tolerance. I don't want to mislead you there. But mercy looks beyond the wrong action or beyond the deplorable setting in order to see a person in need. And how do we do that? How do we show mercy? Now, there are lots of steps, but for this week, let's simply start here. How do we show mercy? We follow Jesus' example. What did Jesus do? Jesus noticed people. We read that he saw the crowds and he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. So what's the first step? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, by the way, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, 
We could even get you baptized today. We can make it happen, okay? But we'll come. But if, if you're not, I invite you to step over the line of faith, okay? But if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, what are you supposed to do? Open your eyes to the needs of others. And let me ask you, how's that going for you? Are you able to look at the lives of people around you with Jesus-styled lenses? For example, do you see the fellow sitting all alone in a restaurant, recently widowed? Do you see him? Or is it just a guy over there? Do you see those of you in school? Do you see uh, that young lady or that little girl that's in the class with you? And every day she wears the exact same clothes to school. And you go, why does she wear the same clothes all the time? Or maybe she wears the same clothes every day because that's all she has. Do you see it? Do you see the young mother struggling with a baby carrier and two toddlers and a haggard look of sleep in her eyes? Do you see that? Do we see the poor in our community? Do we see the, those around the world living without access to health care? Do we see our favorite aunt, your favorite aunt? She's growing closer and closer to the end of her life, and yet no one has ever told her the story of Jesus Christ. Do you see that? Jesus told his disciples in a very famous moment in his life, it's called the, the Samaritan woman at the well and so forth, but at the very end of the story, he says to his disciples, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. In other words, stop looking like this. Look up and see the world around you and see the needs there. If, if Jesus is the author of your story, then that directive applies to you. Open your eyes and look around. The harvest is ready. There's lots to be done. Where can you extend mercy? Maybe you can think of it this way. A woman, Frances Jane Van Alstyne, was born in 1820, a lot of years ago now, in a little village 50 miles north of New York City. She was one of those ladies who could trace her American heritage back to some of the early settlers here in the United States. She had relatives that she could go back all the way to 1635, almost 200 years before she was born. She was born more than 200 years ago from us, and yet she could go back another 200 years and say, into 1635, this is when my family arrived on the shores of the United States of America in Boston. She was a proud member of the Daughters of the American Revolution. At six years of age, she caught a cold of some sort and developed some inflammation in her eyes, and her parents put mustard poultices on her eyes. And um, later on, it was thought that maybe those mustard poultices, poultices had caused damage to her optic nerves, and she got blinded. Now, modern physicians think that she might have been blind all along anyway, just that uh, her parents didn't realize it um, because she was just a tiny baby at six weeks long. But nonetheless, she was blind from, from a, a, a newborn. Her father died when she was six months old, and you've got this story of this young girl uh, trying to do life in a day and time when that was very hard, who's blind. At eight years of age, she was really devoted to God, and she wrote this. It seemed intended by the blessed providence of God that I should be blind all my life, and I thank him for the dispensation. 
If perfect earthly sight were offered me tomorrow, I wouldn't accept it. I might not have sung hymns to the praise of God if I'd been distracted by the beauty and interesting things around me. Now, as a young child, then, she's got devotion to God, but as she went along in her life, that sort of waned a little bit. When she was a teenager, she went off to school at a special school for blind kids, and um, it was there it was discovered that she had a real talent for music, and frankly, she started making money. She started to get a little bit of a voice around the nation, and it wasn't long before the fact that she was blind and was so musically talented became known by people, and very quickly, people were paying attention, and the result was she was the first U.S. woman, first woman to ever speak before the U.S. Senate, where she left her music behind and she lobbied for the rights and cares of blind people like her. And that lobbying and that activism began to promote her even higher and higher. A cholera epidemic hit New York City in 1887. And in all the struggles of people dying and her own blindness and the role that she had in the, in the, in the nation around her, she suddenly realized what she'd written when she was eight years of age. She'd gotten wrapped up in social, political, and educational reform, fair enough, but she'd lost her true love for the heart, for God within her heart. And so she made this dramatic change. She had, if you will, another experience with God, a, a redirection. And out of that experience and her devotion to Christ, she wrote um, these words. And if you'll bear with me as I try and sing this, okay, because I'm not usually the greatest singer, you all know that. But this is what she wrote. Consecrate me now. To thy service, Lord, by the power of grace divine. Let my soul look up with a steadfast hope, and my will be lost in thine. So we may remember that. My will, God, be lost in yours. You've given me mercy. Can I extend it to others? She got married. Van Alstyne is her married name. And very soon the couple... Um, had a baby, and that little girl died with SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome. The pain was real. She never stopped grieving for most of her life, and the loss of that little girl caused the marriage to break up. Yet she went on writing and performing music, now with all of her devotion focused on God. She wrote some 9,000 different hymns, many of which are sung by churches all across the world today. Fanny Van Alstyne, Fanny Crosby. Some of you may know her as. That was her maiden name. She wrote about your story and my story, about receiving mercy, extending mercy, being the person that God wants me to be in the midst of all the ups and downs and the weirdness of life and the struggles of life. Wherever it takes you this week, you can be a person who receives mercy and you can be a person who extends it. Because her story about Jesus' leadership in her life goes this way. And again, I'll try this, okay? This is my story. This is what she wrote. This is my story. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Blind lady, grieving, single again, still saying, I got mercy, I'm going to give it. And that's my story, Lord. That's my story. I'm aware that, like 
like me, there's a bunch in this room, a bunch watching us online in the East Auditorium. You need all the mercy that God can give you. Could I say, friend, receive it today? Through the work of Jesus Christ within your life. And then this week, go out and give it. You can see the need from above, come from below, and meet that need. Would you stand together, please, friends, and let's pray together. God, we want our story to be one that um, reflects who you are. And so to that end, work within us. God, for people who are here today and they, they're not near you yet, they're kind of creeping closer and closer, but they, they need to cross the line of faith. God, I pray that that would take place. And Lord, for um, those of us who have crossed the line of faith, and maybe for some, Lord, it was just this past week. Maybe for others, it was 40, 50, 60 years ago. But regardless, we're, we want to we reflect you in a greater way this week than we did last week. We are still desperately in need of mercy, grace, forgiveness. And then, Lord, this week, in light of what you've done in our lives, in light of the story that you are writing on pages that are still blank, but there's that little faint stuff of God's hand starting to appear and it's becoming legible of what you're calling us to do. Help us to live that story as we extend grace to other people. This week we pray in Christ's name, amen. Friends, if you cross the line of faith today or you'd like to this week, reach out to us. Grab one of us on staff by the arm today, or you can simply text your name to the church's phone number, 217-875-3350, and uh, say, I want to know more about Jesus. We'll be glad to have the chat. Be glad to have the prayer. God's grace and peace be with you this week. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a good taste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. Just to say